Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Doug Lamov, author like Teach Like a Champion and Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Nope, it's our pleasure. Um, Doug, I mean, for those listening that may be a little bit unfamiliar with your work, I suppose, could you just begin by giving us a lowdown? Yeah, well, I mean, my uh, I study teachers for a living for the most part. Uh, you mentioned my book, uh, Teach Like a Champion. Um, it's kind of a, you know, my work for the last 10 or 12 years has been to study high-performing teachers and try and break what they do up into, you know, little pieces of game film to um, to identify and name the things that they do, study them, understand them, help teachers be able to replicate them. At some point, you know, I, I love sport. I played soccer. I played football growing up. Um, at some point, you know, some sporting federations came to me and said, oh, you know, coaching is teaching. I agree. You know, would you be interested in helping our coaches think more about teaching? I was really happy to do that. It sounded super interesting. There are a whole bunch of ways that teaching is different on a, you know, on a football pitch than it is in the maths classroom. And so, um, I just started to think about a lot of those questions and sometimes about the answers that coaches were given because I felt like sometimes the answers replicated some ideas in the education sector that I didn't think were, were supported by cognitive science. So I ended up, you know, just not even really sure when I decided I was writing a book about it, but I ended up, um, spending five years writing this book called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. It's just trying to think about the job of being a coach through the through a teacher's eyes, through a teacher's lens, and thinking, you know, regardless of regardless of whether we're playing a 3-5-2 or a 4-4-2 or, you know, uh, or whether we're in a low block or whether we're pressing, how do I how do I explain things to people? How do I help them remember things? How do I understand whether they're learning the things that I'm talking about? And so... Um, I guess that's kind of the genesis of, of Coach's Guide to Teaching. Well, just to get back to the start of that answer, Doug, though it's interesting as well. I don't, I think like when we're reflecting on stuff like this, it's not particularly a coach's issue or it's not necessarily a teacher's issue or a football issue. Just think given that we're in our specific general domain, that that's our availability bias. I think speaking to a lot of people mm-hmm. from different industries over the past 10, 15 years, and it's come to the core that a lot of these people are operating in silos. And I think the one great thing of the knowledge era has been the cross-pollination and widespread availability of resources. And of course, I mean, you said there yourself, you spent a significant proportion of your life, both in the classroom and the locker room. But I suppose, could you take us through, I suppose, the key differences between both the classroom and the locker room, that which will serve as the underpinning for this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are so many differences, you know, but a couple of the key differences between the classroom and the locker room. One is that, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching a room full of students, um, speed doesn't matter so much. You know, I need you to, my goal is to teach you to learn to add fractions with unlike denominators. It does, you don't have to do it in a fraction of a second while someone is trying to prevent you from adding fractions with unlike denominators. And so, you know, it just, um, you know, one of the one of the fascinating findings of cognitive science is how long it takes to have a conscious thought, and the answer to that is six tenths of a second. Kind of fascinating, seems relatively obscure, but it's not because so many decisions need to be made in the sporting sector faster than that, and so there become this whole set of questions that don't come up in the classroom quite as much about how do you make instantaneous, very fast decisions. 
I think another key difference between the classroom and, and the locker room is when I'm teaching problem solving and decision making in the classroom, I'm usually teaching one person to make a decision for themselves. I'm not teaching 11 players to try and coordinate their decision, you know, to try and coordinate their decision making together and make shared decisions and to read the uh, incipient signals of a decision as it emerges from one of them uh, across the other 10 faster than the opposition can can read and prevent those signals. So there's a sort of team aspect of it that I think is, is also different. Uh, maybe the, you know those are those are two things that that jump out at me as differences, um, but obviously there are a lot there are a lot more and there are a lot of similarities. And to be honest, I'd have to say I think this gray spot is my favorite part of coaching, and I think really that's where the role of an assistant coach comes in, because when you're looking at the classroom, obviously everything's focused on the individual. When mm -hmm. you're looking at the team, you're coordinating group intentions, right? So it's only when you have the lens of an assistant coach or a player development coach where you can actually see this player actually knows. He knows what he's doing. The intention yeah. is correct. It's just the execution and the movement. But I, I suppose, do you think coaches from your experience now and certainly in the last few years, they're obviously a lot more conscious of what's going on given the widespread availability of resources and whatnot. But are we any closer to making, I suppose, becoming more efficient within these processes? Mm. Yeah, I'm really glad to use that word efficient because <clears throat> it generally has, a, you know, the word efficiency gets a bad rap. Uh, you know, not many people uh, would, that wouldn't be the first word that people would use to describe great coaching or great teaching, but it's profoundly important, right? We get a limited amount of time with, with athletes and with the people who are trying to learn and the productivity with which every, you know, every interaction can result in long-term learning is actually really, really important. And so, you know, we should be asking efficiency questions. There's lots of, there are lots of conversations in education where people will say doing X is, you know, has been shown to provide benefit in the classroom. That's not really the question. The question is, does it provide more benefit per minute than some other alternative use of our time? Like what's, and maybe that's another, you know, maybe it's a similarity and a difference between the classroom and the locker room, which is, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges of coaching is the overwhelming signal of the immediate, right? We have a, we have a match on Saturday and whether we win it feels so important. And we feel like sometimes we want to, all of our teaching should be built around that and winning, like it plays with our egos. And, and, I, and I think winning is important, right? It's a, it's a big part of sport, but I think a, the long-term question is what is the most efficient way for, for players to learn over the long haul? So that not so that we win on Saturday, but so that I maximize this player's development as an individual and their capacity to play with other individuals 10 years from now, 12 years from now, or four years from now, depending on where you are, but you know, that, that long-term horizon and the efficiency of the decisions that I make towards the long-term horizon. I think those are critical. To, to go back to your question, yeah, I do think we're making progress. Daniel Willingham, the uh, University of Virginia cognitive scientist, who I think is you know one of the sort of most eminent educational psychologists, uh, he describes the time that we're living in, in as a revolution, the cognitive revolution, right? That we've learned more in the last 25 years about how people learn and how the brain works than in the previous 2,500 combined. And so the question is, how quickly will that knowledge filter into the field and replace older, less efficient, less productive ideas. And I, I'm really happy to see, I, I think there's such a 
really strong conversation among coaches about science and and what and what cognitive science can teach us and you know i, I just you know what it's such a competitive sector that any competitive advantage that allows you to develop athletes better like you, you see the results right away and so you know sometimes when i talk to people in school sometimes i say that i i i wish that i will i, I you know sometimes i will go to a, a sports franchise or a federation and we'll start talking about the cognitive science and people will have read it all you know they'll have read daniel kahneman they'll have read um Paul Kirshner, they'll have, you know, they'll have, they'll know the research on retrieval practice. And sometimes you go to a school and people don't, right? <laughs> uh, they don't quite have the competitive uh, uh, pressure to cause them to be seeking competitive advantage at every turn. So I do feel I do feel good about the um, uh, the improvements in the, you know, I think people are serious about getting better in the coaching sector and, and I see the results. Yeah. So I, I'm optimistic. And two very interesting points, but one perhaps I want to touch upon the cognitive revolution. What stage are we at now, Doug? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's a great, I mean, uh, Yeah, I don't know what I don't know. I, I don't know what the stage is and what the next stage is. I do know there's a ton of information out there that's profoundly applicable. I think we're, you know, I think like I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know many serious football programs that are not aware of the research on scanning and how important scanning is to player development and the rate of scanning. And so this is really exciting. And just like the research on perception, like we know all sorts of things that we didn't know. You know, one of the things I read about in the book is this idea of the quiet eye, which is if you compare a novice to an expert, you would think that if you track their eyes during performance, the expert, the mark of their expertise would be that they take in more information and that by taking in more information, they know more than a novice. And that is the key to their success. But in fact, the opposite is true. That novices look at that novice that experts look at less than novices, and this is because they know where their eyes should go to gather signal and ignore noise. And so much of selective attention is knowing what to tune out as opposed to what to tune in. And so, if you tracked an elite football player versus a novice football player, the elite football player's eyes would be less busy; they would lock in more quickly on the on the relevant signals and cues, and they would have this thing called the quiet eye. So we know a ton, it's really exciting, but then there are all these questions that come out of this, which is, is it a correlation or a cause? In other words, if I tell a rugby player that the research says that the best rugby players look at the point of the ball when they kick it, if I tell you to look at the point of the ball, is, that it, is looking at the, the point of the ball when you kick it um, a cause or a correlation? Is there something else that I'm doing that causes me to do that? Or does that cause me to kick better? In other words, so if I, if I start telling players to look at the point of the ball when they kick it, could that, that could just as easily disrupt their, um, their effectiveness as, you know, bring it, bring something that's automatic into consciousness as make it better in a similar way. Yes. Scanning is really important, but it's necessary, but not sufficient, like scanning to look at what, right? I could be, I could be scanning more, but not locking in on the right signal and not knowing what to look for. And then it would be less likely to help me. So I think we're at the point where we have really valuable ideas to think about as coaches, 
but there are still a lot of un, unanswered questions about how it's going to work in practice. And that's fantastic, I think, because it makes it such an interesting time, you know, for coaches who find the craft of making people better fascinating and and who like it more when it's interesting and there are unanswered questions. I think like, I think there's a lot out there right now that is pretty fascinating. And the opportunity for people to kind of crack the case on uh, how am I going to make everyone's trying to do scanning. How am I going to do, how am I going to, how am I going to develop my players capacity to scan a little bit better than everybody else? Need to play devil's advocate to this now, Doug. Um, I listened to a podcast you run recently with Todd Bean on Cody Royals Murders Wands, which is fantastic. Uh, for those listening that don't know, Todd is Johan Cruyff's son-in-law. And he had countless anecdotes about Cruyff back in the day. One to his fitness coach was, I want my players to be fit for the game on Saturday and I want them to laugh and have fun. And he spoke about making football as simple as possible. It's a yeah. simple game made complex by others. Do you think, I suppose, in this information age, Todd, or Doug, that we're at a stage where perhaps people are profiting from these gray areas, these areas of mystique. In other words, profiting, not in terms of better learning, but, but using um, particularly like technological advances as, as a business opportunity that is more fun, more financial than player development oriented. That's true. And I suppose yeah. by, you know, there's, these gray areas, I think, deliberately, it's like the, the old adage of a motivational coach. Motivational coach will say to you, you have absolutely everything you have. Everything you need is within you. Here, here's your top-up session. Come to me to get yeah. better. Why do you need to get better when it's all inside you? Am I explaining myself? <laughs> I mean, definitely. So I think there's going to be, um, there'll be wheat and there'll be chaff. Right, there'll be substance and there'll be um, illusion as we move forward with any idea. You know, like one of the, you know, just to go back to this idea of scanning, a lot of people are fascinated with the idea of virtual reality. Can you make players better by, you know, having them, you know, put on virtual, virtual reality goggles? I, I'm a little bit skeptical, uh, but I know, you know, there are people already who will sell you, you know, this, uh, an advanced virtual reality system for your club to develop, you know, uh, will there be right answers and wrong answers? Will people sell both of them? Will people diligently <laughs> try to apply both of them? Yeah, it's complex. I think that's part of what's so fascinating about it, which is I think you have to both believe, you have to both believe in the potential, but also be a little bit of a skeptic of the ideas at the same time. It's, you know, it's definitely a complex time to, to be a coach. I think the one thing that just tends to happen, though, is maybe this is a general thought of technology, having seen a lot of educational technology come into the school sector, which is when you get technology, oh, there's virtual reality. We can use, you know, this kind of training to enhance player development. People always overestimate the importance of the technology itself and underestimate the importance of the human interaction around the technology, e even like video. <clears throat> we don't even think about video as a form of technology anymore, but really, you know, like 15 years ago, our, you know, our capacity to like, um, I did some work with um, England Rugby uh, and Eddie Jones' staff, like, Love Eddie, love his staff. They're so intentional about the human interactions around coaching. 
when they, you know, I was out with them filming a train, training session, they have like a drone camera up above to, you know, to videotape what's happening on the field from, you know, from above and they have ground level cameras and they can sync them. And so they can be like, oh, let's watch that. Let's watch that interaction from ground level. Let's watch that interaction from up top. And they can like in real time move back and forth. You know, like that kind of technology is a dream come true. But I think what happens is people get so enamored with the technology that they don't think enough about what does it take for an athlete to find the signal in the technology and use it to learn and change their behavior on the field. And what that comes down to is often really mundane stuff about, you know, like you have a, um, I, I worked with an NBA basketball team. Uh, it's their summer league team. And so these are guys who are like, on the margin, this is like the last three guys on the roster and the top three guys who aren't going to make the roster are in the summer league game to try and prove themselves. They practice in the morning. They videotape the practice. They practice again in the afternoon. Between the two practices, they sit down in this room and they show guys videotape of themselves practicing. They're able to cut it so quickly into clips to watch themselves so they can improve themselves in the afternoon. Like what an incredible gift from a technological standpoint. But I'm watching the guys in this room while the coach is talking and none, nobody's writing anything down, right? They're sitting in the back of the room. Um, sometimes the coaches haven't planned specific questions or even like where, where exactly you stop the video. It's like, you have to plan that because like what you're looking at when you're talking about what you've seen in the video is really critical. And so I'm watching this and I'm thinking out of a, potential 100% of learning that these players could be getting from this, this video session, they're probably getting 10 or 20% out of the, of the potential benefit that they could be getting out of it. But people are like, oh, we have state-of-the-art video technology. Yeah, great, that's 10% of the value. 90% of the value is how do I create an environment in that room where the guys are learning, where they're, where they're like asking and answering questions and talking to each other and studying and paying attention to the right cues and then writing it down so they remember it and then translating it onto the field, right? The better the technology gets, the more it distracts us from the fundamentals of, of learning and translation, which remain just as challenging and just as mundane and just as human, I think, as has always been, always been. Like that was, to the degree that that team struggled to change players' performance using the technology, it was for the same reasons that a classroom teacher would struggle, you know, with chalk on a chalkboard. You know what, though? I think it's all contextually dependent. Um, there's something you speak about, and I love the concept, I love the idea, it's creating a culture of error. But within my particular context now, in this particular culture, or sorry, Doug, it would, it would never work. Never work. Why? People over here tend to don't see the game of football as a series of problems to solve. Hmm. Um, there's very little guided discovery, I'd have to say, very little Q&A. It's very command and control based. So I suppose, I mean, what would you say to me in terms of how am I going to change my environment on a micro level? knowing that the macro deep down the road, the tradition, the culture is never going to change. I mean, it's culture changes. <laughs> it's a profoundly challenging thing, right? Cause it's both the expectations of the coaches and the expectations of the players. 
the first thing you would have to do would be to change the coach's behavior and to shift them to a mindset where they, I think one reason why coaches don't ask, let me take one step further back. I think asking questions is really powerful, right? Asking questions in order to get players to think about the game and generate understanding themselves as opposed to like telling them what to do. I also think there are times when it's totally permissible to tell someone what to do, right? I think that like a good coach is probably a combination of the two. And I think one of the most interesting things, by the way, that cognitive science has to tell us is that um, there's this concept called the guidance fading effect, which is the more novice you are, the more, the more you benefit from someone basically saying, you need to be wide here, or that, you know, like you need to play, play out of pressure here. And the more you advance in the game and the more of an expert you become, the more, um, problem solving and guided discovery and become relevant. And the more you learn, the more you can learn from uh, more autonomous environments where you're just exposed to game problems. Uh, and so the answer probably isn't the same for everybody, but, but let's just assume that both questions and guidance are useful. One reason why it would be hard to get coaches to shift from telling to asking would be that asking is really, really hard. <laughs> like coaches sometimes don't use questioning because questioning doesn't go very well. If they ask a question, it's not clear how you're supposed to answer it. The question isn't very well written. So it's kind of can't, sounds rhetorical. When the question sounds rhetorical or the answer is obvious, should we play centrally or should we play wide, right? Like, I don't know the setting, but from the way that the tone of that question, like I'm basically telling you the answer is we should play wide and I'm pretending to ask a question. Only a fool only a sucker continues to answer questions when the, you know, when the answer is, is obvious to everyone else, right? And so over a time, I risk if my questions aren't good, I build a culture where no one wants to answer because to answer is to like, to show that you don't understand that the questions aren't worthy of answering. And so I've, it's, it's a, actually a really, really complex skill to ask players questions efficiently and effectively. And I have to embed a lot of systems and do a lot of pre-work. For example, I write in the book about the importance of cold calling, which is being able to call on players who haven't raised their hand. And sometimes having wait time, which is like, I don't want the first answer off the top of your head. I want you to think for a couple of seconds. And so in order to do that, I have to cause the three highly verbal players to not shout out the first thing off the top of their head. Right? So there's, there's a lot of work to be done to, to making things successful. And when people try ideas like questioning and it doesn't work well, it causes them to, they don't say, oh, I, my implementation, it must be more complex than I thought I didn't do it very well. They think, oh, questioning doesn't really work. And so I just think one step here is, is to like, really invest heavily in, in helping people to be good at the things that I want them to do that cause a shift for them. And part of that will be, you mentioned culture of error, which is just a combination of psychological safety. I'm, a, I'm, I'm allowed to make mistakes, that's normal. And actually my mistakes are kind of fascinating and I'd like, I'll learn from them. That's really important for players, right? If we, if they're hiding their mistakes from us, and trying to keep us from discovering their mistakes, our job of getting them better gets 10 times harder. But it's the same for coaches, right? That we have to create an environment where they feel safe acknowledging, yeah, I'm trying to ask more questions of my players, but it's not going very well. It's really hard. I'm not really sure what, what you know, what I'm struggling with, et cetera. Um, you know, because changing your teaching is a, is a really, really challenging thing to do. And 
I'd like to caveat that by saying as well, I'm part of a culture here, so to speak, where resources, are, there's a plethora of resources. Yeah. The caveat I'd like to point back to Doug, Doug is that like a lot of your earlier work has been about going into underprivileged schools and turning them around. So I'm just curious as to how these schools manage to succeed despite the odds. I mean, is there any commonalities going around? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you started that question by talking about resources. <clears throat> just to, to go back to that sort of technologies, I think a lot of times like being able to buy what appears to be a solution distracts you from the things that really are the solutions. I always felt like working with schools <clears throat> in under-resourced communities in the U.S., there was like an inverse correlation between sometimes between the quality of the building and the quality of the school when people would start up a school. In other words, you give me a school that starts in a church basement with limited resources, but the people are obsessed on the craft of teaching and the quality of the curriculum that they put in front of kids. And then you give me a school that's like in a bright and shiny new building with like, you know, screens everywhere and the there's the risk that the people are who are running that school are focused on the like, oh, if I buy this technology, if I bring in this resource, it will change, it will change the behavior of the students and their thinking in and of itself. It's kind of like the silver bullet fallacy. And in the end, like I think the best schools that I know, the, the, the schools that reliably changed the trajectory of students' lives tended to be the church basement schools and not the glossy tower schools. And maybe that's a little bit like it's much easier when you have resources to say, I'm going to like, going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to overwhelm this club with like these tangible resources. We're going to have every like thing that you could have. And in some ways that distracts me from like, that's not what make players, that's not what makes players better. What make, makes players better is really sound curriculum. I know what we're trying to teach. We spend time spent time thinking about the vocabulary we use to describe those things and all the coaches speak the same language and we plan and prepare our sessions really well and we think a lot about the culture of learning that we build that um there's no reason why you have to be in a church basement to do those things but in some ways you're more likely to be focused on them when you're not distracted by trying to buy your way out of the problem <laughs> And then if we're going to take a deeper dive into learning, Doug, um, something which I'm big about is obviously you speak in your books about the most overlooked part of learning is actually the forgetting stage. And working memory is very much a short-term game. But perhaps could you enlighten us as to what are some of the retrieval practices which we as coaches can benefit from to, yeah. to move understanding from that short-term to long-term? Yeah, great. So just to summarize quickly, you know, the idea here is that <clears throat> there's a difference between performance and learning, and it's really important for coaches to understand it. <clears throat> performance is what you're able to do in the midst of studying something. So we've spent 90 minutes in a session talking about building out of the back. And at the end of that session, my team looks really good building out of the back. And my presumption is they've learned building out, how to build out of the back, but they haven't. They've performed what they show me is performance, which is the ability to do it. But as soon as they leave the field, they start to forget it. 
and they don't forget it because they're lazy because they don't care because they're unmotivated though those things are real and they can exacerbate the problem they're forgetting because they're human and that's what humans do and you know we've known this for like 130 years which is um left unabated people forget the majority of what they learn and so if i want players to remember how to build out of the back i have to come back to it repeatedly probably at a minimum you know bare minimum three four or five times probably more the faster i want them to be able to recall it the more times i need to come back to it and so that would mean maybe i've maybe we spend 45 minutes on building out of the back and then we spent i spend 10 minutes on some other activity i try to distract them we work on pressing and when they started to forget everything we talked about, I cause them to then have to remember it again on building out of the back and the struggle to remember more deeply encodes it and causes them to forget less. But then two days later, I have to come back to it again. And four days later and six days later that um, the way you build long-term memory, which is what results in learning, which results in transfer to the game is by retrieving, is by, um, remembering the phrase, the best time to remember something is when you've begun to forget it, that I have to have players begin to forget it, then causing them to struggle and remember it will build the neural pathway that will allow them to remember it for the long run. So I think this is fascinating because it suggests to us, number one, that there's almost nothing that people can learn in one session and, and retain in long-term memory, no matter how good the session, right? It's not a judgment in your coaching. If you think you're going to pl teach players to do something in one session, you're wrong. Right, you got to come back to it multiple times if we're serious about it. And that has to change our planning trajectory. P.S. Even coaches who plan in advance, I think most coaches plan in one week cycles <clears throat> because we're planning for Saturday's match and we're planning our training load. And we know that Thursday has to be a heavy day and Friday has to be a light day. And so while I'm training all that, I'm, while I'm planning all that, I might as well plan my training activities. But I don't even think a week is enough time to build <clears throat> really strong long term memory knowledge of things that will last for players last for, you know last for a long time and so that's why we feel like we're on this treadmill and we're saying to players we talked about this we're not why aren't we learning that we're not learning because we're not doing enough retrieval so i would say that like if we really care about long-term learning planning things in like four to six week units when an idea comes up multiple times over the course of that unit is going to be really important and then there's some other things that I think are really important. To do. One thing that I think is one of the great things about retrieval is <clears throat> the duration of time that I spend retrieving something does not necessarily correlate to how much it builds long-term memory. In other words, once we've worked on building out of the back, let's say two or three sessions, I could have my session built about something else. And then I could say right before a water break, say pause, keeper has the ball. We're going to build out of the back. Recall for me quickly, boys, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to be focused on when we're building out of that? They, you know, I they ask them some questions. They tell me, I say, great, let's do it. Let's, uh, you know, let's play. And we do it three times in the course of five minutes. That's probably sufficient to bring, to retrieve the concept back into working memory to cause players to struggle to remember it. And then we go on to something else. And so I can, I can actually build this retrieval practice fairly quickly into my training sessions if I'm intentional about remembering what the things I want to retrieve are and how I want to retrieve them. So like a different NBA team that a colleague of mine works with sort of went through this section of the book. And what they did was they just put a list 
on the board that you could have it on a clipboard or on your phone of like everything that they'd covered in training so that when they saw a five minute or a 10 minute section in, the, in, in, a, in a training session, when they could, when they had five minutes, they could go down this list and say, great, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to redo pistol. We're going to redo, you know, um, defensive spacing. They do it for five minutes. They check it off. They keep a, keep track of how often they used it. And this allowed them to build long-term memory. So just having a list of the things you want to bring into retrieval practice to help yourself remember to retrieve them. And the other thing that I think is really profoundly useful that often is overlooked is just the importance of vocabulary, which is if we refer to something in the same way over and over again, then everything I learned about it coalesces quickly into a, into a schema in my mind. But if I use different words to refer to the same concept or two different coaches refer to this, the words and then players won't make connections between those things. And so as a club taking the time to say, you know, the example I sometimes give is like receiving the ball in the half turn versus receiving the ball side on. Those are the same thing. But if half my coach, if my U11 coach refers to receiving the ball in the half turn and my U12 coach refers to receiving the ball side on, my kids are not going to connect the two things as, as quickly or as easily. And so they might perceive them to be different things, right? They won't learn as quickly. But if I have a like club-wide conversation about these are the words, we're going to be consistent about using them. We're going to use them every time so that my players have a deep understanding of these concepts and they can use them with each other and talk to each other about them then it will be easy for uh, easier and more efficient for us to learn and easier and more efficient for us to bring ideas back into to retrieve them into long-term memory sorry for that sort of meandering <laughs> but, I, but i just think yeah like forgetting is so forgetting is such a profound problem fascinating by like and just given what you said there i bring up the quote of john wooden who described the artist's coaching as the gap between what i thought and, and what they learned there, Therein, for me, lies the fallacy of language. But perhaps, Doug, you, as you mentioned there, what I'm particularly intrigued to go at now is, do you think there's a deeper level of understanding than communication? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If your players learn to talk about and understand and even recognize in video getting in between the lines, would that ensure that they are able to, you know, position themselves in between lines on the field? Definitely not. Right, that I have, so I have to <clears throat> understand it at a cognitive level, but I also have to, for lack of a better, understand how to do it. And so one way that I could think that I was applying retrieval practice without applying it would be only to talk about it, right? When we're building out of the back, what should we do? That's important because it helps me to think about it engages my working memory on doing it then when I practice it. But if I don't actually do it, then I won't be learning it. And I think this gets it like <clears throat> another area that I think, I think is a potential huge area, huge area of, of opportunity for coaches, which is the difference between um, correction and critique, which, you know, it's like so often on our stoppages, we're playing, we have a, you know, we're playing a, um, playing an eight V eight game small sided game. It's, you know, the idea is to get a lot of time on the ball, but every once in a while I make a stoppage and I say, maybe it's even a question-based stoppage. Boys, what happened there? What do you notice about the center of the field, right? There uh, were numbers down in the center field. Great. What, where does that mean there might be, 
when we see that we're numbers down somewhere, what does that suggest about somewhere else in the field? We have to be numbers up somewhere else. Yes, where are, where are we numbers up right now? On the right flank. Yes, what could we do to get the ball there quickly? You know, so like we ask some questions. If all I do is talk about it, <clears throat> it's not likely to transfer, right? The, then what I need to do is say, great, let's go back to where we had the ball three seconds ago. Let's see you solve that problem now. Let me see you get the ball to the left flank, right? As quickly as you can. I'll let you do it, you know, we'll do it, we'll do it slowly and then we'll start again at, at, at live play and we'll see if you can do it at speed, right? That if I, if I just tell players things without giving them the reliable opportunity to put them into practice, they won't learn how to do it in a game. P.S. just to go back to the importance of perception, which we were talking about, kind of talking about before. If I want players to be able to generate solutions from themselves, as opposed to from a coach saying, pause, there's a problem here. We, you know, in other words, if I want them to recognize the cue themselves that the midfield, you know, we're, we have a number situation in the center of the field, so we should play wide. Then my stoppage should always start with my recreating the scene that players were looking at. And I should, I should really focus here on asking perceptive cues. So I've just been working on this sort of stoppage model, which is um, recreate, review, rehearse, restart. So that would mean like pause. Boys, let's move back to where we were about five seconds ago. Connor had the ball here. Jose was here. David was here. Now, Connor, you're the ball. What do you see? Right. So then I want to start with my, I'm recreating the scene so you can look at it. And then I'm asking you visual, like a visual perception question. What do you notice about it? The middle's really clogged right now. Good observation. Where does that play? Where does that tell us we should play the ball? Wide. Great. So I'm going to play the ball back to you. Why don't you show me the sequence, you know, sequence of touches you can play to get out wide. Great. Nicely done. Now we'll start back again with, with Connor with the ball. When I say, when I say go, uh, you start, when my hand comes down defense, you're live. Maybe I give you like two second head start. So you can actually like, because I want to create an opportunity for you to actually redo the thing that we just talked about. So there I let you just like rehearse it, build it into a long-term memory and then actually try and do it successfully. Um, I, th I think this, this model of stoppage is really important because it results in players, not just hearing a coach tell you, here's what I think you did wrong. Here's what, how you should think about differently, but it results in, repeating the action in a way that's more productive, hopefully multiple times, and, and connecting the action to the visual cue that, sh that I want you to be reading to, make, to help you make future decisions. Amazing how incompetent I'm being felt I am now. But, um, you know, this is, it's very interesting, Doug, we're speaking about the current day learner, the current day student, current day player. What I'm big about at the moment is looking at, unfortunately, today's events, what they're leading towards. What do we need to do now to provide, to be ready for the future learner, for the future mm. player in five decisions? That's a great question. Will you, will you start? <laughs> what are some of the things that you're thinking about when you, when you think about the future? Because you probably know. Yeah, well, look, on a foundational <clears throat> level, I spoke to Sally Needham from the FA. She's absolutely fantastic, Sally. Um, certainly podcast worth checking out about this a few weeks ago she spoke about the effect of babies being born in lockdown obviously the two most important things in communicating nonverbal communication are the whites of your eyes and your mouth you've seen babies being born nowadays and they're going out and about into the real world 
can only see the whites of your eyes, they can't see your mouth, they can't see your face. And the mothers themselves are carrying a lot of anxious genes in them. Sometimes they're giving birth without the partner necessarily being there. So in terms of what we're advocating for players nowadays, being psychologically safe and secure, I mean, wow, how emotionally intelligent and self-aware we're going to have to be in a few years' time to cater for this new generation. I mean, last year I had an unbelievable experience. I took the under sixes. And for them, with schools closed down in Dubai, it was very much the first time they were encountering other kids of their age outside of a house or five. And the way they were just, I was, I was losing myself in sessions, not focusing on the content at all whatsoever, just being aghast at how these kids were acting with each other. No, exper no experience at all in no. social and what social norms are. <clears throat> None. None at all. Yeah. I mean, it's a, ter <clears throat> it's a terrible time that we've been through, but it reminds us of how, it reminds, I think, of a couple of really important things, which are one, belonging is the most important human emotion, right? It's the most profoundly motivating human feeling. And we can, we can create a sense of belonging in the institutions that we put young people in, including teams and clubs. One of the things I talk about, you talked about the whites of, of, of people's eyes. And I talk about this all the time with classroom teachers that, you know, people ask themselves, evolutionary biologists have asked themselves for a long time, like why do what, we're the only primate that has whites of its eye. We have white sclera, every other primate has dark sclera. Um, and so evolutionary biologists have been like, so why, why are we different from every other, every other primate? And I think the answer that they've come up with is called the cooperative eye hypothesis, which is um, we're fundamentally, you know, we think of evolution as an individual phenomena that we survived evolution because we have big brains and opposable thumbs. But in fact, we're profoundly weak species compared to any other primate, any other animal you would have come across on the savanna through eons of prehistory. The way that we survived was by the ability to form groups and to collaborate within groups and be connected and be a part of the group and to be cast out of the group through most of human evolutionary history was a death sentence. And so um, we're by far the most social primate because we need to be, because we can only survive in groups. And so much of your status and stature and um, success within the group and the way the group feels about you is communicated by their eyes and whether they look at you when you're talking or whether they look away with complete disinterest when you're saying something or whether they roll their eyes at you when you make a mistake or whether they lock in with you with a sense of caring you know like those cues are profoundly important and so much of our status within the group is carried in the eyes that we have evolved to be able to see our eyeballs more clearly to, to more clearly read the signals that we send and receive about social inclusion. So I, I talk a lot in the classroom about how profoundly important it is just to look at each other when, when students are talking, if the rest of the class is looking at them and nodding their heads, they're sending a message that I care what you're doing right now. And if someone is talking and other people are looking at their phones or they're looking out the window or they're slouched and their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now, that is a person who will not, that will result in people not feeling included and, and belonging in the community. And I think like those, 
there are a thousand tiny signals in a team, right? When we get together for a team talk, are we in a circle? Are we, are we all looking at each other? Are we all you know, equally included? How do we, when we struggle, how do we show that we are supporting, you know, supporting each other when, when, when a player makes a mistake, how do we interact with him and tell them, help tell them that there's an alternative or that we wanted to have players talk to themselves on the field in a way that builds each other up instead of tearing each other down. Like, I think those things are profoundly important in any culture and are magnified and multiplied, or at least are their importance to us should have been magnified and multiplied by the isolation that we and our children haven't, have endured for the last two years, because they've just, you know, the case study you describe of like these kids literally running out of running outside after a year and a half of pandemic and having no idea how to interact with each other constructively is a case study in how, how profoundly important those sort of belonging signals are and also how the single biggest driver of behavior in any social setting is norms, what people perceive to be the normal behavior. And so I talk about that with, again, like an analogy with teachers, teachers know that their relationships with students are really important, but there's this fallacy that teachers will sometimes say, kids don't care what you say until they know that you care. And so teachers interpret that as meaning like, I can't teach anything until I've built a relationship with students. I think it's a fallacy because I don't know how you build relationships with people unless you teach them successfully in a learning setting. That's one of the ways that we show people that we care about them and we value them. It's just, especially when they want to become good at something like the game of football, which is I show that I, I show that I care enough to make you better and I make you better. And that makes you believe in me to some degree. And I think the second fallacy about relationships is that so much of what, when, when a, let's say I have a student and they say, I love Mr. Walsh, I love his classroom. Partly they mean, how does Mr. Walsh interact with me? And partly they mean, how do I feel when, when I'm in his classroom? And that is a proxy for like, how do, how, do, how do the other students in the classroom make me feel? And if they make me feel supported and cared about and part of something important, the name I give to that is I love Mr. Walsh's class. I like Mr. Walsh, right? But a lot of that is about students projecting their feelings about peer-to-peer -peer environment the team environment onto the, onto the teacher or onto the coach. So I think what I'm saying here is that like belonging in many cases is, and relationships between coach and athletes are built by the social norms, the peer-to-peer, -peer, like the, the mundane aspects of culture about how players interact with each other, which I can shape. They're hard to shape, but I can shape. And I think I have to shape them to create the most powerful learning environments. Well, something I wanted to bring up about coaches burnout and teachers burnout. And I'm going to bring it up now, but underneath the context of what you've just discussed about social norms. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at a group of players, there's 17 or 18 of them. There's that sense of belonging, whether it's there or not it's more easily achieved and attainable than it is amongst the pack of coaches. But you look at that first team coach, that manager, who's operating on an island. Cody Royal writes about this all, like how lonely that job is, right? You almost can't trust, even on your own staff sometimes. 
what must be going through their head? I mean, it, like, it makes perfect sense as to why there is record numbers of coaches dropping out of yeah. not yeah. only football, but other sports too, citing burnout factor. Yeah. It's similar in teaching too. And I think one of the reasons is because it's such a lonely job, right? You close your door as a teacher and you don't interact with any other adults uh, about your job. And um, we're all in this coaching in this case, because I assume we had profound experiences in team sport and we love, we love the game of football, but we love the endeavor of it, the, that game being 11 of us working together to solve a problem. Like we are inherently team oriented people. That's why we want to, we're motivated by a team, by a highly team centered endeavor to become coaches. And then the coaching job is this, can be this very isolated individual thing where, where the, the teamness of it is gone. And I think that's like maybe one of the differentiating factors in a great club, which is a mediocre club to me is like a shopping mall, right? Every coach gets to open their own store and they run it on their own rules and they run it basically in isolation. At the end of the day, they close the door and they go home. Same with schools. A mediocre school is a shopping mall. But a great school and a great club make teaching and coaching a team sport and they get people together, not just to learn, but to learn in a way that is fun and collaborative and collegial. I think one of the most interesting things about coaching is that like playing a sport, it's a performance profession that you have to do it live. <laughs> you make all these decisions live, you walk out and you like, you get, you give your team talk at halftime, you talk to your players during practice. And if it doesn't go well, you can't, you're not like a lawyer. You can't like go back to the document and rewrite it. Right. It happens live. And the way that people prepare for other professions that perform live <clears throat> sport being the most foremost of them, but also like surgery and the arts is they, they practice together. And so if I want to get better at asking questions, I might get together and we might script some questions and I might pretend, you know, get together with three or four coaches and you guys pretend that you're my players and practice asking my questions. You're going to tell me how my questions went and whether they're good. And, or we get together and I share my session design and you give me feedback on it. But one of the other things that's happening when I'm doing that professional development is I'm making coaching a team sport and like we're together and we're laughing, hopefully, and having a great time and, um, you know, we're having a bite to eat and telling each other stories about the funny or serious things that happened during our training sessions and suddenly we're connected and we're building a club-wide ethos of what it means to te teach, but we're also building club-wide sense of belonging and connection among the coaches. And I think that that is, if we want people to love the job and do it for the long-term, we have to create that sense of team camaraderie that without talking about it is so much of what drove all of us to our love for the sport was that sense of camaraderie. Like I think about this even in my job, like I, any job that I do where I'm, I'm solving a problem as a team, I'm happy. And if someone says like, Lamov, go solve this problem sitting at your desk. I'm unhappy. Um, some people love solving problems on their own. I would assume that most of us, because we love the game of football and this 11, 11, 11 v 11 endeavor, like we want to solve problems as a team. And I, so I think there's this huge opportunity for clubs to 
make the job of coaching feel like team sport. And, and inherently that will involve some coaches will have to give up some autonomy, right? I'm saying if it's not a shopping mall, you can't do it any, like we're going to agree to what the terms we're going to use are, and we're going to agree on what you're going to teach as a U12 coach. And we're going to agree on our methodology to some degree. And we're going to, because we think we can do it better together. And at first people may resist that, but what you get back is a sense that I belong to something and have colleagues and we can commute, we can talk about the joy and the struggle and the difficulty of our, of this, of this job. And um, that makes it a lot, a lot more sustainable as a profession. It's been an absolutely fascinating hour or so, Doug. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have and countless others listening, but just one final question to go. I mean, what are some of the questions coaches should be asking after asking themselves after listening to this today? One is I would say when I'm trying to teach my players to make decisions, how much am I teaching their eyes? But, you know, you mentioned Todd Bean, who I admire immensely. He maybe started my book with this phrase that all, you know, decision-making all starts with perception. So how much am I developing my player's eyes? Number two is what am I doing to make sure that players remember encode in long-term memory, not just in short-term memory, the things that we're talking about, how much retrieval practice is there. Three might be a phrase that you use, which is what have I done to build a culture of error where players don't feel like they have to hide mistakes from myself, from me, the coach and their teammates, but actually willingly expose them so they can get better. And four, who can I connect with? Who does this job? Who makes me happy? So I can build a network of colleagues that light my mind on fire and make me feel like um, I, I have the social network to continue to do this job for a long time. Because I would just say like, you know, we've talked a lot about my interest in this as an educator. I'm also a parent, I have three kids. Two of them were football players for years and years and years. Um, and the lessons that they learned playing sport, yes, about the game of football, but also about like what it means to believe in something and work hard for it and be a teammate and be a good teammate under duress. Like those are really important. Is a gift. The, the coaches who taught them those things are really important things. And so I'm just grateful for the things that coaches do, what the work that the work that coaches do is really, really important beyond the pitch. And so the more you can make yourself happy and gratified and do it well, you do things that you do better what you're happy doing, uh, the more you can pay it forward to young people. What a fantastic way to close. Doug Lamoff, thanks so much. Connor, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation.